Um, while you're turning um, to Exodus chapter 20, you may want to, I want you to turn to the book of Romans chapter 7 as well. And I uh, want to read verses 7 of chapter 7 and following. But chapter 20 of Exodus, uh, you know the background. They've come to Sinai and the law, and God's giving the law as a means of staying free so that as you keep the law, the law that God gave, you stay free. He said, you want to, I, I saved you out of Egypt, right? Right. I, I delivered you through the Red Sea, didn't I? Yes. I gave you freedom, right? Now, do you want to know how to stay free? Yeah. Well, here it is. And he gave the Ten Commandments. True today, true of this nation, as well as that nation then. Now, I, want, I, just, uh, I feel that, that the, um, seven, in the 17th verse, the Tenth Commandment, is something that we need to hear. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Covetousness. Now let's read that uh, seventh chapter of Romans beginning verse 7. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? May it never be. On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law, for I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin taking opportunity through the commandment produced in me coveting of every kind, for apart from the law, sin is dead. Does uh, the name Grady Nutt uh, ring a bell? He was this uh, comedian, uh, one of my favorite guys, really. Grady Nutt has been in this church. He was killed in a tragic plane accident not long, a few years ago. But Grady Nutt said that he uh, went to Wayland Baptist College. It's a Baptist college out in Plainview, Texas, out in the middle of uh, the uh, West Texas, and he said, really, uh, Wayland is five miles from any known sin. <laughs> and he said, uh, they had three rules at Wayland. You won't drink, and you won't smoke, and you won't want to. <laughs> and he said, I got kicked out for wanting to. <laughs> well, wanting, is, wanting to is where it all begins isn't it? This commandment recognizes the titanic truth that the good and the bad begins in the head and that your life will be success, a success or a failure in direct proportion to what you desire. You've heard it said that a person becomes what he thinks about all day long or what he dwells on. It's literally true that what you set your, the affections of your mind and your heart upon, your desires, 
will have a great deal to do with what you become. It all begins with wanting to. Now what does covet mean? You've heard that word a lot. What does covet mean? In the purest sense, simple definition of covet means to desire earnestly. To desire earnestly. Now the word is an amoral word. That means that it can be good or it can be evil. It, it is an amoral word. As a matter of fact, Paul told the Corinthians to covet the best gifts. And Jesus sat down with his disciples and the Sermon on the Mount, and he was going through this marvelous sermon, and he said, Blessed is the man, blessed is he, who hungers and thirsts after righteousness. And you can put in there, in the blank, who desires earnestly righteousness so that covetousness can be good and it can be bad. As a matter of fact, um, desire, there's really not anything wrong with desires. Desires of life are perfectly legitimate. There isn't anything basically wrong with desiring to be happy, to be comfortable, to have a reasonable portion of the world's goods. Things go forward on the wheels of desire and motivation. But there is a great danger in desires. Inherent in desire is a danger. The danger is, is that it seems like the more we desire, the more we desire. The more we have, the more we want. It seems like that that desire has an inherent danger to this degree that it just never gets satisfied, never gets fulfilled. I saw this uh, little cartoon. It was a, an obvious teenager sitting on the couch with his girlfriend. They're watching TV. And he has this kind of has his arm over there a little bit, and he starts to make a little move there to get a kiss. And she pushes him back and she says, Bobby, I'm sorry, but you've got bad shocks. <laughs> so he's going to say breath, right? I'm sorry, you've got bad shocks. I can't help it. Your car just runs terrible. The next caption, he's off down at Midas, you know, getting some new shocks. The 1993 Cadillacs are here. It's time to move up. Just sit down and watch your friends watch you. I mean, what can be better than that? To sit down in a brand new car and watch your friends watch you. Desire, covetousness, just never seems to get fulfilled. And desire has, ruled, has ruined everything we've touched. It has polluted our streams and our air. It is the itch of misery. It is the enemy of happiness. It is the father of selfishness, desire. There's an old fable that says that Zeus came to a guy one time and says, I'm willing to give you anything you want provided you can, your friend can have twice as much. He said, I want to go blind in one eye. <laughs> Just can't stand it that our friends would ever get ahead of us. 
And the Bible is filled with the tragic stories of the tragedy of desire. And there is David with all the joy gone out of his life because he desired another man's wife. And there is Achan who brought the judgment of God upon his whole community because of an unredeemed desire. And there is Ahab with his back to the wall and to people in the room pouting over the fact that Naboth had a little garden and he wanted it so bad he was willing to spill Ahab's blood in order to get it. And there was Mordecai in the book of Ruth a man so respected that when he came into the room, people bowed in his presence. But his eye was on the one man who didn't bow. It clouded his whole life. The Bible is filled with the stories of the tragedy of desire. Thou shalt not covet. And Jesus picks up on this commandment and puts his finger on it and says... It is wrong to desire the wrong things. And it is wrong to desire the right things for the wrong reason. And it is wrong to desire the right things and the improper order. And he puts his finger on it and says, as he blends it with the first commandment, that desiring things more than desiring right standing with God is one of life's largest blunders. I need to say that again. One of the biggest mistakes in life, one of the largest blunders in life, is desiring things more than desiring God or right standing with Him. And so we talk about standards of living, and we mean neither standards nor living. And we talk about how much a man is worth when all we're talking about is how much money he has. And you can go in the bookstores and see all the books on the shelf and there's one whose title stands out, Think and Grow Rich. You take that book off the shelf and read the foreword and the author of that book said, I begin to understand what it's all about when I saw the little secret that, is, that was written between the lines. When I discovered the secret that was written between the lines, I became a rich man. The little secret written between the lines is not hard to detect. It was greed. And the, think of that, and the theme of that book, Think and Grow Rich, is, is that all you need in order to grow rich is to think about growing rich all day long. And Jesus said, that one of the biggest blunders one can make is to desire things more than right standing with Him. Now, I want us to um, turn back to the sixth chapter of the book of Matthew. If Jesus, if to Jesus the most important thing is to have right standing with Him, I want us to look at three principles of possessing. Then, then, then what do you do with things if, no, if being right with Him is more important than things? How do you possess things? What do you do with things? How do they relate? You see what I'm saying? This is yes. Three steps, three principles of possessing. Number one. Let's read verses 19 and 21, by the way. Chapter 6, before we get to number one. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures upon earth, 
where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break through and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in or steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. First principle. Temporary holdings do not constitute real riches. Temporary holdings do not constitute real riches. There's a basic principle here. Listen. That which can be lost is never really owned. And no man is rich to whom the grave brings bankruptcy. Did you hear me? No one is really rich to whom the grave brings bankruptcy. Now let me see if I can paraphrase what Jesus is saying. He's saying, I love you, and I don't want you to spend your short but valuable lives piling up temporary treasures. Haven't you lived long enough to understand that just about the time a person says, I've got it made, that time runs out on him? Don't you know that life treasures are always eaten by the moths of depreciation and wasted by the rust of inflation and stolen by a thousand and one thieves in this country. I don't want you to waste this valuable life laying up treasures that won't last. For temporary holdings do not constitute real riches. Second, Eternal investment, eternal investment is the wisest. Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Now, um, I'm I'm one of these firm believers that God wants us to have, and He wants us to to succeed. He wants us to have um, fortunes. But He doesn't, he, He wants us to have fortunes in places where you can keep them. And what he says, in essence, is, I want you to make a fortune. I want you to be rich, but I want you to place it in a place where you can keep it. I want you to invest in the kingdom of God. Invest in the kingdom and let this investment draw interest compounded throughout eternity. Are you, are you investing your life in anything that will outlive, outlive you? That's the question. And I come, um, uh, it's kind of a procedure of mine at the uh, internment uh, at, at after, after funerals to read from 1 Corinthians 15. It's a good thing to do. You get to the end of that where he's talking about the resurrection and, and then he says, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain. And then he puts a little phrase out there, in the Lord. And what he's saying is, is that if you keep on toiling in the Lord, you're investing in something that is, will always last, exist. Otherwise, you've wasted your life. That's why the psalmist cried, 
Establish thou the work of my hands. The work of my hands, he cried. Establish thou it. What he's crying is this, God help me to do something that will outlive me. That's what it's all about. Over 50 years ago, a class in John Hopkins University, a sociology class, went down into some of the worst, most deprived areas of Baltimore in some of the slum sections of Baltimore and they went into these row houses and they, they visited with these children in these slum dwellings. They put their names on there, their addresses. And when they came back, there were 200 um, of these cases that they studied. And when they came back and they turned in their study, their, their findings, they, they on, on every one of them, on almost every one of them, they wrote this statement, headed for jail, headed for jail. And he put these uh, cards in this file and filed it away in the archives of John Hopkins University. And what they meant was these kids growing up in this situation would not have, you know, the, the chances of ever amounting anything would be very slim, slim or none, headed for jail, headed for jail. Fifty years after that, some guys I guess in a class was rummaging around in the archives and he found these cards. And he decided, well, headed for jail, I'm going to see. And he started investigating these, seeking to find that where these people were. Every one of them had headed for jail on there and found out that every one of them that was listed, or 200 of them headed for jail, only two of them ever went to jail. And so they, he got his class together and they went out there and they started finding out why. I mean, they had every reason you know, in the world to wind up in jail. And when they started investigating, they, they found a common denominator, a woman by the name of Aunt Hannah. Sounds like a, sound like a uh, hot cakes, you know. That's Aunt Jemima, Aunt Hannah. And when they, when they found out about this woman, she, they found out that she began to invest her life in these kids in the slums. And every time they'd start to go wrong, Aunt Hannah was there to guide them. Aunt Hannah was there to straighten them out, steer them right. And 198 of them never went to jail. Why? Because a woman invested her life in theirs. Now when you come to the end of it and they draw the bottom line, the question is, have you invested in something that will outlive you? That's the big question. Establish thou the work of my hands. I want to know <clears throat> before I die that I've done something that will live on after I live. I've got, it's, I've got to do it. Principle number three. We always look after our investment. Where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Now the interesting thing here, the implication is, is that your treasure is not the most important thing. What is the most important thing is your heart. And what your treasure does to your heart, that's the key. Where your treasure is, there will be your heart also. So that a person, if he invests his life in, in that which lasts, what does it do to his heart? It 
It warms his heart. It blesses his heart. It enlarges his heart. Uses his heart. Now the question is, how can we overcome covetousness? Now Christianity is not Buddhism. Buddhism teaches that that you need to kill all desire. Kill all desire. And if you've got some desire, kill it. And when you get all desire killed, you reach nirvana. Christianity is not Buddhism. And you have desire and the things in, in life moves on desire. What do you do about covetousness? Number one, you covet God first. Covet God first. And Jesus said, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. All these things will be added unto you. And fr- Friday we had our little men's luncheon and we studied this passage. The word seek there, seek first, the kingdom of God means to strive earnestly. It's the picture of a runner stretching for the tape so that every ounce of energy seeking. First is the priority so that what has priority for me, what I strive for daily in continuous action is His kingdom and His righteousness. Now His kingdom means, that term is used often, it means the rule and reign of the king over his subject. My earnest striving is that God would reign my life. And his righteousness there means not right standing. In, in that word in the Greek means that's used, Jesus used in 633 of Matthew is a word that means every requirement of God for me so that my earnest striving is that God rule over my life and that everything he requires I'm obedient to do. That becomes my daily quest. And if that, becomes, if that is my goal and my purpose in life, then all, everything else, every priority relates to that goal. Now watch this. It means that if God's reign in my life and His requirement of my life is my earnest striving, then whatever I, whatever I do, whatever I choose, wherever I go, wherever I spend my money, whatever I buy or sell, whom I marry, whom I have as friends, all of it is, fits into this and answers must come to this question, must relate to this question. Will this advance the kingdom, the rule of God in my life, and will it be in concert with everything God requires of me? And if not, it's out of here. You hear me? The way I choose what I'm going to do and what I'm going to, uh, where I'm going to be is in concert with this goal that God reigns my life and His requirements I do. If it does not advance that, it's out of here. Seek God first. Second, covet to grow as a disciple of Jesus Christ. Covet to grow as a disciple of Jesus Christ. Um, just popped into my head to do something here. Let, we got about five extra minutes. I want you to turn over to Second Kings uh, with, with me, would you? Second Kings, chapter one. That's an Old Testament book. Uh, make that First Kings twenty-two, the last chapter. Of 1 Kings. 
Last chapter of 1 Kings, verses 1 and 3, look at this. And three years passed without war between Aram and Israel. It came about in the third year that Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, came down to the king of Israel. Now the king of Israel said to his servants, Do you know that Ramoth Gilead belongs to us? And we're still doing nothing to take it out of the hand of the king of Aram? We got into, in our class this morning, well, we had a good time in there. And we talked about this, 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 this uh, statement. Isn't it ironical that the king of the northern kingdom said, Ramoth Gilead belongs to us, but we're doing nothing to get it. Now the irony of that is, is that if it belongs to them, why don't they have it? I mean, you know, there are things that you can have you don't have. There are things you have you don't have. You know that? Christian, we are placed positionally into Jesus Christ, and in Christ positionally we are, can I use the word, perfect. Because when we stand before God, He looks at us in Jesus. And last time I checked, He's perfect. And I got a sermon sometime I'm going to preach. I told my class, you're shocked that I have a sermon I haven't preached four times. But I, I have a sermon I haven't preached. The title of this sermon is, You Need to Become What You Already Are. You have Ramoth Gilead, but you don't have Ramoth Gilead. You are a disciple of Jesus Christ, but you are not a disciple of Jesus Christ. And the sad thing about it, when you look at this passage here, the, the tragic thing about it is, is he said, we have Ramoth Gilead there, something that's really ours to possess, and we're doing nothing to possess it. The tragedy is that you and I were meant to be much more than we are, and the problem is we're doing nothing about it. You understand what I'm saying? Are you back with me? Are you on the same page? You understand what I'm saying? What I'm saying is this. Is that the issue in, this, in the Christian life is that we need to become what we already are. And the tragedy is we don't care that there's so much more that we are not yet touching or possessing or appropriating. If I were to ask you, do you live a life of victory? Do you have peace? Do you have victory over sin? Do you have answered prayer? Do you live in triumphant living? Do you have a forgiving, compassionate heart? The answer for most of us would be no to every one of those questions. And the, and the, re, and, and the tragedy is we don't care that we don't have victory or we don't have answered prayer or that we're not living in triumph or that we're not overcoming sin. Covet to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. Who is your hero in the Christian faith? If you probably, you know, you'd probably answer, well, the greatest Christian I've never known anything about is the Apostle Paul. Why not be like him? You say, well, he's the exception. He's not the exception. He's the example of what every child of God ought to be. And so Dwight L. Moody heard somebody say, the world is yet to see what God can do with a man totally committed to him. And Dwight L. Moody sat out there and said, I'll be that man totally committed to him. 
result was that this man with a fifth grade education took one continent, England, Britain, and another continent, America, and he moved them both toward God. Covet to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. Finally, covet the best gifts. Now the last part of, of uh, 1 Corinthians talks about that. In fact, 12th chapter of 1 Corinthians talks about spiritual gifts. He comes to the end of that chapter, trust me, says, covet the best gifts, but I show you a more excellent way. And then he moves in to the 13th chapter of 1 Corinthians, and we all know what that is. What is it? Love chapter. And so the Apostle Paul is saying this, covet the best way to live. Love. Love is patient and kind, never jealous or envious, never boastful or proud, never haughty or selfish or rude. Love does not demand its own way, is not irritable or touchy, will hardly even notice when others do it wrong. It is never glad about injustice, but rejoices whenever truth wins out. If you love someone, you'll be loyal to him, no matter what the cost. You'll always believe in him, You'll always expect the best of him, and you'll always stand your ground in defending him. Now abide as these three, faith, hope, and love, and the greatest of these is love. Covet to be a loving person. I was flipping through yesterday just being sure that I was getting all the basketball games on TV. And I saw the most gross sight as bodybuilder. I'm telling you, the guy, it was a bodybuilding contest. I think I've got a pretty good body myself, but, and so I, I'm always somewhat offended by, man, this guy was, he was weird looking. And oh, they were talking about, what a body, what a man, wow, what a body. And, and he was, you know, <laughs> so just boring, boring, his muscles were just, it's like he blowing them up in a, just, just it, was, it was weird looking, gross. And they were talking about, man, everybody, Everybody needs to look like that. I say everybody needs to look like Jesus, whatever he looks like. And that ought to be what we covet more than the next breath. Let's pray. Our Father, I pray that we will know the right way to covet to desire that, that we be like your son, that above everything else, for I pray in Jesus' name. I want to give an opportunity for response in case God's called on you, called you to respond. One time I, I decided we wouldn't have an invitation and started close and the guy stood up and said, I'd like to join the church. Somebody will let me. Oh, I've always thought, well, this might ought to be a pretty good idea in case there's somebody that God is dealing with to give them an opportunity to respond in public invitation. Maybe you want to give your heart to Christ or 
or to um, make a new commitment to God or join the church while we stand to sing, we invite you to come.